Coming up this hour, we're talking about the debate tonight, Church After COVID, and we're joined by Dr. Reverend Chris Castaldo. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. How the heck are you, everyone? Good to have you with us. If you want to find us in places other than where you're hearing us right now, you can go to Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. I really mean it this time. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing does help us out a whole lot. We have we have good ratings, just not a lot of them. So at least right. currently... We're still we're holding out of that five star rating, which is not hard to do when you only have seven reviews. But <laughs> we're we're grateful for it none nonetheless. And uh, if anyone will be willing to add to that, that would mean a whole lot. And we're super grateful for those of you who have already done that. I want to spend uh, the bulk of our time talking about the debate tonight, but real quickly mm-hmm. because Brian is our like resident sports guy, and it's not that I am. I'm not but you you put me to shame you you're like a like a true sports fan there's been some uh some nfl news that i don't know if you care about or not but i'd love for you to kind of give us a quick flyover yeah let me do that it, i'm the sports guy like you're the show uh documentary guy i love a oh. good documentary okay but you you are the aficionado of the documentary so uh yeah he, the nfl so most of the sports right now uh, have been sailing along here in the midst of COVID. The NHL uh, crowned a champion last night. The NBA, we've made it to the finals. Baseball is in the playoffs. The NFL has got it started. And the NFL just had their first COVID issue today where the Tennessee Titans have had to close their facilities because I, they're guessing upwards of eight guys may have uh, tested positive. So out of an abundance of caution, they're closing. And then the team they played this past week, the Minnesota Vikings, Uh, out of even more caution, said we're going to close as well since we're with you this weekend. And so it's just interesting. This may turn out to be nothing, but every time these happen, you get a little bit worried, like, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. It's been too Mm -hmm. quiet and too good for a while. Uh, So the first COVID issue, I would say, first major COVID issue of this young NFL season uh, has has hit, and it hit the Tennessee Titans uh, this morning. I'm actually kind of surprised it took this long. I don't know why. Are you surprised or is this about what you were expecting? You know, I I would have said that I was surprised, except that all the other sports have been doing so well. And once you yeah. realize all the protocols are taking, they're literally wearing bands that like that, like track who they've been near at all times. It's all right. very, very fascinating. Uh, so, yeah, I it certainly is expected that this was going to happen at some point. So it'll be really interesting to see uh, the length it goes. And the ultimate question uh, is, are they going to lose any games? Are any games mm. going to get canceled? So we'll see. That remains to be seen. So there's a couple other articles that are loosely related. One out of uh, Christian Post, the headline says, nearly three quarters of pastors are concerned with presidential. the presidential election will impact churches. That's from Barna, which that number sounds about right to me. But you found this one out of uh, NBCnews.com. It says, most voters say... Uh, most voters say Trump-Biden debates won't move them, but here's why they could matter. I'd love for you to get us into that a little bit because I see a lot of people talking about the debates tonight, and I just think that's fascinating that most voters are saying, yeah, I don't think, regardless of what I see up there, I don't think it's going to change much, which is different than probably it was 20, 30 years ago, and I'd be curious to know why you think that is. But yeah, could you just get us into the article a little bit? Yeah, at NBC News, as you said, it says the first debate is tonight. 
Uh, but it's unlikely to change the minds of the vast majority of the American electorate who have already decided whom they support and say they can't be swayed. But the debate still could rattle the race and rev up the electorate. A marginal impact in persuading voters could have a profound influence on the outcome if the contest comes down to a few battleground states. And some experts say presidential debates have proven to solidify impressions of candidates in ways that affect voters' behavior. The debates could be Trump's last best chance to reshape the contest, but that won't be easy. Uh, And it goes on to talk. And one of the things that it says here, and this speaks so much to to um, the the age of the guys that we have running being two guys in their 70s in Trump and Biden. They said that uh, this article goes on to say that it might not even be about what is said tonight unless one of them just says something outlandish, which we all know, especially with President Trump, that can certainly happen. Uh, but if they both stick to message that, that it's begun to be thought of that tonight and in the other debates, the most important thing is which of these two candidates, Trump or Biden, comes across as the most lucid, mm-hmm. as the least old, if you will, that if they either of them have what this what this article calls senior moments, if either of them appear uh, to stumble or to lose their train of thought, that that could be what sways this much more than. You know, what does Trump say about health care or what does Biden say about covid? Like if they stick to their messages, it might be about who literally performs better and who doesn't come across as old because they're both trying to say that the other one uh, is losing their fastball, especially Trump about Biden, that there's dementia issues, that there's this. If either of them kind of lose a train of thought or don't make sense, uh, it's interesting. They've been saying that that could sway voters more than what they say about the economy or COVID or whatever else. That's what I find fascinating. It is fascinating and yet not all that surprising. And I think part of what's interesting to me, and we've talked, you know, again about the uh, JFK Nixon debates and, you know, the difference between people who saw it versus heard it. I don't think that's necessarily a new thing. I think we are pretty easily swayed by the person that, you know, has the most likability from our perspective, but it, this particular contest is the most interesting I can remember where people were outright saying, yeah, I have a pretty good handle on the policy. Like our access to information is so much different now than it was two decades ago that we're not really watching the debates. Most people aren't watching the debates to quote, find out how they feel about this topic or this issue Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. the people that are interested. They pretty much already know that now it's sort of like, Let's see how they perform. Almost like it's a TV show, right? Like almost like it's a like a UFC fight or something. Well, we'll see who yeah. who who looks the most fit out there. And you're like, that is again not nothing, but certainly interesting and feels like is different now than it was, you know, even four or eight years ago, which I I do find fascinating. I want to spend just a couple of minutes on this uh, one from Christian Post. Nearly three quarters of pastors concerned presidential election will impact churches. My apologies for uh, bumbling that earlier. My word on my computer was going nuts, and all these word docs opened up (laughs) while I'm trying to read (laughs) these articles. Yeah, it caught me up like three or four times. I'm like, where am I? What's happening? So real briefly, uh, what's going on here, and do you feel the same? Yeah, it's a Barna thing, which, as we've said before, Barna tends to be one of the more reputable uh, survey taking organizations. And like you said, it says uh, they took a poll of 475 Protestant pastors 
and when asked by Barna about how concerned they were that the election will impact our church, 33% of respondents said they were, quote, very concerned, while 41% said somewhat concerned. So that's 74% of respondents mm-hmm. expressed a level of concern that the election will impact their congregation. Uh, and uh, it says, despite the concern about the impact, the surveyed pastors indicated confidence on handling the divisiveness in their respective churches. I totally agree with this, man. We've talked about this. Yeah. Uh, I do not see much good coming out of these next couple months for churches, for evangelicals, uh, because of the dividedness, particularly around President Trump. And I see it in my own church about the anger and the frustration people have towards other people in the church about Facebook posts or whatever else it might be. Uh, I, I'm not looking forward to these next couple of months. I think there's lots of teaching moments, and I think that hopefully we'll all take advantage of it. Uh, but I would I would say that I share their concerns about the presidential election impacting not just my church, but but all of our churches. I think that's a true statement. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is loosely related. I think I texted this to you earlier today. There was a really wonderful conversation between Ezra Klein and David French about I listened to it. Polarization and the whole thing. Oh, goodness. It's it's so it's like an hour and a half. So it's, you know, a bit of a an investment as far as podcasts go. But I, I thought that was like a really not only was it an intelligent conversation, but a good yes. civil discussion between two guys that disagreed on a lot of things. Either way, this and everything else we talk about is on the Facebook page. We'd love to know what you think, what you're seeing, what you're feeling. And uh, as always, that's all at the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, lead pastor of New Covenant Church here in Naperville, Chris Castaldo, is going to join us for two segments talking about an article that he just recently wrote for the Gospel Coalition. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A couple of particulars. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcast. You know the drill. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, that helps us out a whole ton. And I am absolutely thrilled to have for two segments, not only a brilliant mind, a phenomenal pastor, but a legitimate real life in space and time friend, the right Reverend, Dr. Reverend Pastor Chris Castaldo. Welcome to the show, sir. <laughs> that is the best introduction I've ever received. Thank you, Ian. It's great well, to be with you. A well-deserving introduction. I could spend the next two segments just talking about how much I appreciate you and your writing and your ministry. But would you just take a, a minute or two and briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, gladly. I uh, live in Naperville, where I also pastor New Covenant Church. been here now for uh, six years. Uh, before that, I was at Wheaton College, and prior to that, at College Church in Wheaton, from Long Island, New York. So I am a stranger in a strange land, wearing my <laughs> pinky ring. Uh, but we do have here in Naperville, as Ian knows, uh, an authentic New York pizzeria. So at least I can go there with my paisanos and uh, enjoy some some good espresso and the like. Well, Chris, you need to know that I, too, am a fellow East Coaster from New Jersey oh. and uh, have spent much of my time out here trying to find good New York pizza. My favorite place just closed here in Glen Ellen. So off air, we might need to chat a little bit uh, because I could use that pizza uh, recommendation. It's very good. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. I have the place for you. I am looking. We are going to need to end this interview so I can get the information quickly. <laughs> uh, Chris, as you said, you're at New Covenant Church in Naperville. Where, there's an article that you wrote for Gospel Coalition and some other stuff that we want to dig into. But I'm just curious to start here. What has it been like for you? We've asked a lot of pastors this. What's it been like the last six months of COVID uh, and all the changes that have happened? What's it been like for you as a lead pastor of a church? Yeah. Oy. 
uh, you know, we're inundated with logistics. We Suddenly we become iPhone televangelists. Uh, you know, in a church like ours, we have stained glass. We don't have screens. Uh, it's a little different from the church Ian serves. Uh, we have to suddenly find a camera person and, you know, create uh, infrastructure that we didn't have. So that was a particular challenge. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, the ongoing struggle of um, uh, navigating the, um, the controversy as it relates to do we wear masks? Mm -hmm. Is this a good thing? Um, uh, along with the, um, the, the ongoing difficulty concerning political things, uh, right. congregants who are putting <laughs> onto their Facebook page yes. diatribe. <laughs> so, you know, as a pastor, uh, you, you find a lot of your time occupied with uh, putting out those fires, uh, but they are also great opportunities for shepherding. And, uh, and so it's been a fruitful time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Brian mentioned this article from Gospel Coalition, which I just reread this morning, and it's great. It's called Three Reasons Evangelicals Shouldn't Become Roman Catholic. And you, you mentioned sort of uh, the three broad categories. You mentioned disenchantment, the quest for clarity, and the desire for church unity, which I think has some incredible insight. One of the, one of the phrases that you use, actually, is that technological contrivance, which is a great word, buffers us from the genuinely human and in light of what you were just talking about there, would, would you talk to me a little bit more about the ways that you guys have been able to utilize and leverage technology and maybe as a pastor, some of the ways that you sort of grieve its necessity? Yeah, I finally have a media team. Um, and I'll tell you, it's, it's such a blessing to have talented people who are able to take your content, whether it's a sermon or a blog post or a podcast, and distribute it for you. Because all of that takes time. Uh, and when you're a shepherd, you don't want to give yourself to all those uh, logistics, but um, you want to be uh, the pastor. So uh, of late, I have been uh, enjoying the camaraderie that comes from working with such team. Yeah, for us, it's it's Sunday morning, uh, producing it in a way that is accessible. Uh, we have a number of different programs that we produce in the course of a week, one of which is called The Day After Sunday. And uh, Greg Wheatley, who is our music director, and I uh, produce that. And uh, it's simply tr uh, trying to uh, understand what it looks like for us to, to be Christ followers who are intentionally embodying and proclaiming the good news where we live. That's mm -hmm. the common thread. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so um, if it was up to me uh, with with the technology, we would be in big trouble, but I'm, I'm super grateful for the talented people the Lord has brought here. That's good. Yeah. And so again, Chris, getting back to the article that you wrote at, at the Gospel Coalition, which, as Ian said, was fabulous, uh, called Three Reasons Evangelicals Shouldn't Become Roman Catholic. And obviously, we had Mark Galley on a week or two ago, uh, and, and a lot of this conversation has come out of uh, him being the old Christianity Day editor, now be, now uh, converting or becoming Catholic. Uh, do you sense, as you're writing this article, is this a topic that is increasing? Are you seeing more people going from evangelicalism to Roman Catholicism? I'm just wondering what kind of your, your perception of the lay of the land there. Yeah. So the way I learned about uh, Mark's conversion was uh, through a friend uh, who works with the Gospel Coalition, and uh, he sent me a text and it, it was rather cryptic. It was something like the ratio of individuals who uh, convert to Catholicism from an evangelical background and those who 
write books about it is still one to one, and I, and I thought <laughs> it's a <every> moment <laughs> because there is this uh, this tradition, right? Uh, yeah. Including such people as Frank Beckwith and Peter Kraft and, and others, uh, Ron Howard, who um, are evangelicals, scholars, or, or pastors, or and then they they convert to Rome. And uh, and they write a book on it, you know. So I think all of that is to say there's a lot of attention. I don't know it represents uh, the broad movement one might uh, envision. Mm. That's fascinating. I know that we only have a couple of minutes left of this segment, but uh, in the interest of whetting the appetite, could you just take a couple of minutes and briefly talk about the the three reasons that you offer in this article, and then next segment we'll kind of take a deeper dive into those reasons. Yeah, so disenchantment, as you said, is the first one, and it's this realization that uh, life in this secular world is uh, buffered, in the world, words of Charles Taylor, uh, that our hearts crave the transcendent. And very often in one's pursuit of that spiritual encounter, uh, they, they have an experience in a Catholic church, perhaps. They hear the singing of the sanctus and uh, the, 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 the lighting of votive candles and, you know, uh, kneeling in prayer. And their, their soul is awakened in that experience. And that leads them uh, toward Rome. So um, I think this this desire is something we all experience, and uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, with her liturgy, with with her uh, textured uh, forms of spirituality, uh, offer a gift that many people find attractive. Mm. And then, what about what about the other two? You had quest for clarity and desire for church unity. Can you give us just a couple of seconds on those two before we dive in in the following segment? Yeah, cl- clarity is simply uh, the the um, the objective word. Uh, concerning what uh, God says to us. And when you look at the different denominations of Protestantism, you can get frustrated. Uh, who speaks uh, with that voice? Uh, and who gives the last word? And so that's a factor. And then third one is church unity. Uh, and here again, it's the fragmentation. It's the infighting that is uh, so uh, common to the history of Protestantism uh, that becomes a reason for one to look Romeward. That's phenomenal. If you're uh, just joining us, that is Chris Castaldo, pastor, doctor, right reverend Chris Castaldo, just to remind everybody, who wrote Three Reasons Evangelicals Shouldn't Become Roman Catholic. He's also the pastor, lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville and author and contributor to numerous books. He's going to stick around for one more segment as we take a deeper dive into this article, and that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us, quite literally, all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Instagram and Twitter, at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcast. If you wouldn't mind, subscribing, rating, and reviewing does help us out a whole lot. And we're joined for a second segment by Dr. Reverend Chris Castaldo, lead pastor of New Covenant Church right here in the wonderful Naperville, is also the author of numerous books. You can learn more at newcovenantnaperville.org or chriscastaldo.com. Highly recommend that you do. We're also talking about this article he wrote for the Gospel Coalition, Three Reasons Evangelicals Shouldn't Become Roman Catholic. And in it, you talk about technology and some of its role. You talk about one of my favorite topics, the, the hunger for beauty. And the three reasons that you give are things that I, I think a lot of us have probably felt at some point in our lives, or we feel right now even, disenchantment, 
the quest for clarity and the desire for church unity. I'm wondering if you could take a bit of a deeper dive into those three and maybe maybe working in reverse since you gave us a little bit about disenchantment in the first segment, but but why why these three and what is sort of your evangelical response to them? Yeah, we hear Paul's words, diligently preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then we, we look around the landscape of our churches and it is troubling to see the the conflict that exists, you know. So how do we make sense of that uh, as a Protestant? How do we give an answer for the unifying hope within? And uh, I think it depends on the criteria. That is the way you define unity. If you're looking through a lens uh, that is institutional in nature, then to be sure, th- there's there's uh, there's variety to an extent that that could be a problem. In other words, all the denominations are right. are crying out for explanation. Um, however, from an evangelical perspective, one whose faith is grounded in the text of Scripture, uh, I think we would want to say it's not so much the institution, but it is the, the common message uh, that Jesus is Lord, the message of the gospel that is the proper, uh, the, the, the primary uh, criteria. And uh, in that case, you could walk down Main Street and have all kinds of different churches. But inasmuch as they are all proclaiming Christ in, in a way that's biblically informed and, and grace-centered, then we, in that case, have real unity. And uh, that, I would suggest, is, is the, the, the substance, the measure of uh, unity that we are pursuing. That's great. How yeah, we discussed earlier, kind of the divisions we have politically and everything right now. How can individual churches strive for unity? I think we as pastors all long for that. We preach on it. Maybe some people out there are thinking uh, right now, what would some steps be uh, to grow in unity as churches? Yeah. Uh, so as we uh, touched on in the first segment, you know, this is a highly contentious moment of history. And, uh, you know, our people, uh, we all are imbibing media constantly, and so often it's, it's cast in a political light. Um, and so I think as, as shepherds, our opportunity is to adjust that perspective so that we, we see Christ and his kingdom uh, first and foremost. And in that case, our calling isn't so much to advance uh, this, this set of, of policies, uh, so much as it is to uh, to embody and to announce uh, the message of Christ, and hmm. and that's not a simplistic calling. It's not to to say it's it's just the uh, the doctrine of justification, but it is to say instead that everything I say and do must reflect the character of Christ. It's not hmm. appropriate for me to enter the public square and be bombastic. As a Christian, <laughs> it's a non-starter. <laughs> and so how can I be principled on issues of justice, on issues of life, but do it in a way that is distinctively Christian? Uh, that's the opportunity before us in this moment. That's really good. I mentioned in the first segment, too, you used the phrase, this this idea of a hunger for beauty. I actually remember the first time I discovered the transcendentals of Catholicism, truth, goodness, and beauty, and realizing that in in my limited evangelical experience, I, I heard a lot about the first two, you know, truth maybe being the doctrine and theology piece and goodness maybe being the sort of the ethics piece. But I I'd never really, at least from my experience from the pulpit, heard a lot about beauty and its significance and its importance to the Christian life and formation. Could, could you speak a little bit to 
what you call the, the hunger for, for beauty and why that's so significant? Yeah, I, I think one of the challenges we face as Protestants is that our our faith is so cerebral. Now, um, right. it is predicated on propositions. And so what we um, teach and what we believe is is of vital importance. And we have to get that right. You know, so right. doctrine matters. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem, though, is, you know, and you see this in the church, right? If there's an issue, the solution we often come up with is let's have a class or, mm-hmm. or let's obtain this curriculum. And, and, and it gets, it's so heady uh, that it, it doesn't address all the dimensions of the human experience. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think uh, the Catholic tradition reminds us uh, that there is very much a, a communal, spiritual, liturgical um, calling here. And, uh, I don't know. I, as I look around, I think Protestant churches are, are recognizing that um, and more and more. And so what that means is um, the gathering together of God's people is absolutely crucial. Of course, now we're in COVID time where we can't quite gather. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so so, it, you know, there, there are some inherent challenges at this time. But I, I think we have to step back. This is where uh, Jamie Smith has been helpful, right? Talking about the heart, the cardia, uh, that, that the, the decisions we make often grow out of our emotional framework just as much mm-hmm. as they do our rationality. And, and we as shepherds, we, we as teachers and disciplers, uh, need to serve in such a way that uh, does business with that part of of uh, human life. That's great, mm. Chris. I'm I'm really grateful for all of this, and I'm wondering uh, with the time we have left, a couple minutes here. What if there's somebody listening who's like, you know what? I think I'm want to change from Protestant Evangelical Church and go try the Catholic Church. What would maybe just be a word that you would give them? Maybe an encouragement of how to work that out in their life right now. Yeah, I, I would uh, encourage that person to pause and and honestly ask why. You know, why am I interested in this? Uh, you may be surprised to find that the Protestant tradition uh, possesses the the resources that you are looking for, and uh, I, I would contend that it does. Uh, the The series I did with Brad Littlejohn at Davenant, for example, walks through uh, all of those details. Um, and so. Uh, the other thing I would say is don't don't go it alone. Find a friend, find a pastor, uh, and and have the conversation. And because here again, our, our rabid individualism gets the best of us. But um, our identity is is communal. We are a body, and we need to walk with one another through through these times. It's not a bad thing um, to ask questions and to have such interests. Uh, it's an opportunity for growth. And it's uh, it's it's one that we need to embrace together. Well, Chris, I'm uh, I'm certain that there's no doubt in any anyone listening's mind like why I I am so grateful for you and for your <laughs> leadership. Honestly, I think Naperville is better yeah. with you and your church in it. And uh, I, I'd love to give you just an opportunity in 20 seconds or less, like tell people about your church. Where can they go to learn more? What are some of the the options available to them right now? I would love for people to know more about the community that you lead. Yeah, thank you, uh, Ian. Uh, we're at the corner of 75th Street in South Washington, tall steeple building. That's where we gather. And um, currently we have a service outside on our South Lawn, and then the second service is, is inside and, and masked. Um, and you could learn more about us from our website, which is newcovenantnaperville.org.
Outstanding. And, and probably the most important question of the entire interview, uh, what is the name of that pizza shop again? Yeah. <laughs> it is Little Pops. Mm-hmm. You Little won't Pops. be disappointed, I assure you. It's, I will it's, be. I will be there within weeks. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you, it'll it'll be worth the time. Uh, if you're just joining us again, that is Dr. Reverend Chris Castaldo, lead pastor of New Covenant Church in Naperville, also the author of many wonderful books and blogs. You can learn more at newcovenantnaperville.org or chriscastaldo.com. Brother, thank you so much for taking the time to thank join you. us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You know the drill. We're all over the interwebs. You could probably just Google it or ask Alexa. Speaking of Alexa, have you seen The Social Dilemma yet? No. I'm going to. I promise you. It is on my list. I'm going to see it. Don't worry. This won't be like we went through with Alexa last uh, last year. Oh, I'm not worried. I'm I'm more entertained than anything. But uh, you're we'll, more skeptical. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll follow back tomorrow. Here's an article. Uh, again, like you were saying, it's from Scott McKnight's blog, the Jesus Creed, right. but it's not by Scott McKnight. It's by Carmen Joy Imes, and the headline is something that you and I have tackled a number of times: Church after COVID. Why bother going back? Do you want to get us into it? Yeah, and it's a long one, so I'm going to jump around a little bit. Okay. But the article begins, uh, it's Sunday morning. I sit by the gas fireplace, snuggled up in a warm blanket, relishing the quiet. Before long, the rest of the family will stir and we'll have a choice to make. Get ready to go to church, live stream the service at home, watch it later, or skip it all together. Some of these options have emerged in 2020 thanks to the global pandemic. After six months of worship at home with church on Zoom or YouTube, rhythms that used to be automatic are no longer a given. Uh, He goes on to say that in their country, in Alberta, Canada, they have zero cases of COVID-19 province-wide. School is back, uh, but attending church is more complicated, a lot like a lot of us are dealing with masks and pre-registration and hand sanitizer. Uh, And so it goes on to say, The pandemic has foisted an even bigger question on all of us. What is the point of church anyway? Hmm. Can it be done online as well as in person? And if so, then why go back at all? Uh, So therein lies the major crux of this article. And we'll jump into it more. But I'm just curious. uh, My church has gone back in very limited fashion, but we have stuff for your church uh, for various reasons has stayed uh, completely online for now. Uh, how would you answer these questions? Like, can it be done online as well as in person? And if so, then why go back at all? If somebody asked you as a pastor, uh, what would you tell them? Yes. And again, we've talked about this before. It's tricky to give a yep. response right now because we've lost a lot of nuance. And by making one statement, people assume five other Good things point. that you didn't say. But like for me, uh, and again, this is maybe a little on the nose. I think what we're doing digitally right now is a great substitute for now. But as best as I can tell, and this is maybe showing some of my own ecclesiology, my own personal conviction, uh, the gathered body is a very significant central part of what it means to be the church. Now, I I think taking the right precautions and again, I'm not I'm not pointing fingers at how anyone has navigated any of this because none of us have a playbook. So grace to all of you for figuring it out, how you're figuring it out. But the embodied, incarnate, enfleshed gathering, physical gathering of people, I think is really, really important. People will often say, well, what about people who can't leave their homes or people who are hospitalized? Mm -hmm. I -hmm. I certainly think there's considerations for all of that. But I don't, at the end of the day, pandemic notwithstanding, if if there weren't circumstances like that, 
Uh, I don't know that digital church is like truly the full expression of what it means to be the church. Again, super grateful for the resource. And and I think a lot of people probably do feel like it's a substitute for now, but I can't wait till we get back. And the article in the next paragraph says, depending on your church's tradition, an obvious answer may present itself. Communion. If you are Anglican, Episcopalian, Catholic, or Lutheran, you've gone without communion for six months or longer, which as a quick aside, I know plenty of churches in the area that are offering like communion pickup in their parking lots on Saturdays. Even for Baptists, crackers and juice at home are not quite the same. Likely you feel the ache of its absence and you're eager to return. Communion is one important dimension of gathering for Christian worship that YouTube cannot replicate. It points toward a broader issue, embodiment, which I actually didn't realize that she uses the word embodiment. That's kind of, that's kind of what I was saying there. So then yeah. we're going to take a dive into uh, Heidelberg Catechism and all that. But I'd love to know the same question you asked me. Like, how how are you feeling about all of this? And I know that you guys are kind of offering a bit of a hybrid right now. But right, where right. where do you land? I think you you said it well. I think uh, the old caveat to everything is right. Pan, global pandemic, notwithstanding, right, right. uh, I think we not only long to be back together, but there's importance to it. There's, there's greater value than just watching online. Uh, but there is a global pandemic. And so I think churches like yours or others that we've talked about, who've said we're staying online for various reasons are doing it for the right reasons. And then it becomes to how can we make this the best substitute for this time right now? I doubt anyone in your church is going, Hey man, this is awesome. Let's just keep doing this forever. <laughs> like, yeah, right. but you're doing what you need to do and all churches are. And so that's where this article goes because this author says is in, in a place where they are going back. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, this author is going to give a list, thank you very much, for four mm-hmm. reasons uh, I, as the author, am choosing to attend church in person again now that it is allowed where I live. So that is the big caveat, yeah, right? right? This article is being written from a place where it's allowed, where things are much more open because right. things are going really well in Canada. And so let me just run through number one. Number one is this, weekly fellowship in a church body orients my loves. Each week, my heart is recalibrated in tiny ways that keep me facing Jesus rather than drifting in another direction. This is true even if I don't feel particularly inspired or challenged on a given week. Church is not a vending machine designed to meet my immediate needs. It is a field that when cultivated year after year will produce spiritual nourishment. The fact that I don't walk out every Sunday with a full belly does not mean it is pointless to go little by little. Week after week, I tend this field until it yields an abundant harvest. I really like that imagery. Why don't you give us number two? Why don't I, Brian? Number two, weekly (laughs) fellowship in a church body reminds me that following Jesus means joining God's family. When I signed on as a Christian, it was not a transaction designed primarily to secure my eternal destiny. Becoming a Christian means becoming part of God's family and changing how I live here and now. Spending week after week with these people sharing this experience eventually adds up to a network of caring relationships. It doesn't happen overnight. Remember, it's a field, not a vending machine. But as we do life together, uh, we lend we lend support to each other on our faith journey. Simply watching from home positions me as a solitary consumer rather than an active participant. While, di- while digital worship has been a gift to keep us connected during this strange season, it is not sustainable. It's not a sustainable way to cultivate the community of faith. That's good. Hmm. 
It's good. Number three, weekly fellowship in a church body enables me to participate in God's work of grace in others, right? My effort to show up encourages my leaders upholding their ministry. Any pastor who's tried to preach to a camera knows it's not the same. My (laughs) presence supports the work of my pastor and worship leader to study, plan, and prepare. My presence also affirms the value of corporate worship for all those in attendance. My smile and my wave from six feet away and my voice lifted in praise behind my pandemic mask manifest the Spirit's presence to others who have come. This is what it means to be the image of God. Our identity as God's image is expressed physically, an embodied reminder of the presence and the rule of God. We represent the unseen God to one another. I'm not my own. I'm a member of something bigger than myself, Christ's body on earth. For those who've been isolated at home and traumatized by the incessant trials of this difficult year, my physical presence may be a lifeline. Caring eye contact may lend strength for yet another week. That's good, man. Then lastly, number four, weekly fellowship in a church body is a means of declaring allegiance to the kingdom of God. On the outside, the church may not seem like much. It may seem weak, but the church is a visible witness to the unseen reality of God's kingdom. Being present each week testifies to this. It acknowledges that God's invisible kingdom is more substantial and more lasting than the other concrete institutions in my community. It will outlast the postal service, local businesses, schools, and politicians in their offices. It will outlast the pandemic and the hurricanes and the wildfires and the ugly inequalities in our world. My participation ensures this. It testifies to the greater and lasting kingdom. And again, we know full well that this is a hot button issue. Mm -hmm. This is something that a lot of people feel very strongly about. And uh, we would really love to know what you think. We've shared this over on our Facebook page. Do you agree with all four? One of the four? Do you disagree entirely? We would love for you to weigh in over there on the Facebook page. And uh, that means that the first hour is in the books. But coming up in the second hour, we have some unfortunate news regarding Ravi Zacharias. We're going to cover a number of other topics here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, some troubling news regarding Ravi Zacharias. Six ways to ruin your children and what to do when the future feels hopeless. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. By the way, if you missed our interview with Chris Costello in the first hour, I can't recommend to go back and listen to it. He wrote a brilliant article out of Gospel Coalition. He's just an all-around good, smart dude and a great pastor. I'm really, really grateful for him. Speaking of podcasts, you can get our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you wouldn't mind, you can even do it while you're listening, subscribing, rating, and reviewing Helps us and the show out a whole ton. You can also find the show on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. And I imagine stories like this one will uh, garner some some comments, some feedback. We we really welcome that. If uh, private messages are more your style, if you have suggestions for future shows, whether that's topics or interviews or links or stories, any of that, all it's all, all, it's all fair game, and we would love to hear from you there. Uh, Brian, this is a story that there's been some buzz about for a mm-hmm. while. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we've actually tackled it head on yet. And there is some stuff that accusations that came out uh, today, this morning, that uh, I was feeling like, at the very least, we we need to talk about this. And we'll try to do as fair a job as we possibly can. But it does come from uh, the world of Ravi Zacharias and a number of things that people have, some have been saying for years, 
And there's a link to another story that we might not have time to reference, but it's another Christianity Today article about why we report bad news about leaders even after they passed away. Uh, so that's, I think, a really good supplement to what we're going to tackle here. But why don't you why don't you just go ahead and give us the flyover, and then we'll get into the weeds a little bit. Yeah, I think you did a good job kind of introducing this. I hate this story. <laughs> yeah, let's right. just start there. There's nothing right. There's nothing good about this, but I think Christianity Today in particular here does a really good job, like you said in their note, explaining why they feel like it's important to still report these stories even after Ravi Zacharias is no longer with us. So it says this, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has opened an investigation into allegations that its late founder and namesake sexually harassed multiple massage therapists who worked at two day spas that he co-owned. Uh, the three women who worked at the businesses located in a strip mall went on to, I'm going to spare us what they say that Ravi Zacharias did. Uh, Ravi Zacharias Ministries denies the claim, saying in a statement to Christian Today that the charges of sexual misconduct, quote, do not in any way comport with the man we knew for decades. The organization has hired a law firm, quote, with experience investigating such matters to look into the allegations, which date back at least 10 years. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries declined to answer any further questions about the uh, about the inquiry. Uh, and so it goes on a lot more here in the article to give details of what they are saying went on. Uh, but like you said, this has been bubbling under the surface now in some of these, uh, I would say, on Christian Twitter and in other places over the last month or two. Uh, and it's very complicated because Ravi Zacharias, somebody who many people, myself included, have uh, benefited greatly from his ministry while he was here on this earth, right? Like uh, we talked about him when he passed away last May. I think we played some of his clips um, at the same time. And Christianity Today goes on to say, this is why we're reporting on this story even after his death. It's this, that all abuse claims, they said, uh, here they, they went on to say this, uh, Christianity Today said, the whole church needs the light as painful as it can be. Christianity Today doesn't undertake the long and expensive work of investigating accusations in order to create a list of notorious sinners. Our aim is correction, mm -hmm. not just of the leaders we're reporting on, but on all of us. And goes on to talk about the importance of uh, of not trying to silence abuse victims and to right. bring this sort of truth to life. And so it's such a complicated and, and dark story. And, and there's a complexity to it because Ravi Zacharias is no longer here. He has a grieving family. Uh, but this is extensive reporting that seems to say that there was a dark side to Ravi Zacharias uh, that, uh, again, highlights for the upteenth time since you and I have started doing the show, much of the dangers of Christian celebrity and yeah. much of the dangers of putting too much of our hope in individual preachers and evangelists and apologists and authors and whatever else. Uh, that just because we see them on a stage doesn't necessarily mean that we know who they are. And so, again, in all fairness, his organization is denying these claims, but there is very extensive reporting from very reputable reporters that seems to give uh, lend a lot of credence to these dark accusations. Yeah, and uh, we probably won't have too much time to get into it. There's another article that I've linked here, though, from Psychology Today, and the headline says, Why Don't Victims of Sexual Harassment Come Forward Sooner? I included that because on most of the news sites that I've seen posted about this already, there's at least a dozen already people saying, well, why are they just coming out now? Why, why did they say something sooner? So that maybe, maybe that's a full segment for a later time, because I think it is really, really important to understand some of the why in this other article that's linked 
uh, from Christina today about why we report bad news about leaders even after they've passed away. I want to read the first couple of paragraphs because I yeah, think it helps do. frame a little bit how I feel because people have asked us the same thing. Why would you got? Why even bother bringing this up, guys? You're the common good. Like, aren't you supposed to should talk about good things? You should talk about things that unify us. And I think the way that they write this is better than I could say it. So let me just read a little bit. It says, Christianity today is motivated by a deep love for the church. And I would say, Brian and I agree. That love is sometimes painful, especially when it means reporting evidence of harmful behavior by ministry leaders. These allegations are hard for us to publish, and they can be hard to read. Over the years, some readers have wondered why we publish evidence of wrongdoing by ministry leaders otherwise doing good in the world. Other readers who support investigative reporting in general think it should be aimed outside our particular Christian community. But our commitment to seeking truth transcends our commitment to tribe. That's a good line. And by reporting the truth, we care for our community. Love compels us to love those hurt by ministry leaders, not just the immediate victims, but countless others who see the fallout from leaders' sin and abuse and wonder if Christians really care. Deep love for the church also compels us to love erring ministry leaders. They often need disclosure to lead them to repentance. Our love drives us to investigate allegations or to continue our investigations, even when an accused leader is deceased. Sin's devastation persists long after a ministry leader dies. Should we ask victims to carry the burden, trauma, and shame of their experiences alone in the dark? No. Neither a ministry leader's good deeds nor his death should silence his victims. And people who sin need the grace that comes with the light. Death precludes the opportunity for a sinner's repentance, but not the opportunity for a victim's restoration and freedom. And then I'll just read this. The whole church needs that light as painful as it can be. And I... I thought that was really well said, actually. And that's a lot less, I guess, about this specific story and a lot more about why I think it's important for Brian and I at times to talk about these things. Now, you know, full disclosure, we're not on the hunt for these stories. Like we're not spending our off time looking for like other leaders and other ministries and churches we can like dismantle as we sort of like salivated the story. Like I hope that you hear it in our voice every time we've had to tell one of these stories or report on one of these stories. It's heartbreaking. It's devastating for all the reasons they've listed and more. But I also think it's part of our responsibility given this platform to do so. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. I would prefer never to do another one of these stories ever no again. Kidding. Right. <laughs> because it means the church and leaders and the quote unquote celebrities are getting it right in the Christian world. But I think Christianity Today really did a good job by adding that editor's note to go, listen, we're not trying to be TMZ here. We're not trying to be like Christian TMZ and just tear down and just expose and gossip, but that, you know what, if these did, if these things did happen, uh, his victims need the restoration and the, and the, uh, the healing. And at the same time, one's death, as they said, doesn't do away with those, uh, with those things that have happened. And so uh, I would love nothing more than to find out these aren't true. But like I said, these are coming from some really extensive back uh, reporting from some very good reporters. And so uh, it's something that we in a Christian world with Christian celebrities and people that we put up on pedestals will need to continue to wrestle with. I'm, I'm sad to say for a long time, I'm sure. Yeah, 100%. Coming up next, an article that's a couple years old, but I I found pretty interesting from Jeff Robinson over at Gospel Coalition, simply titled this, Six Ways to Ruin Your Children. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good on this National Coffee Day. You're not really a coffee drinker, are you, Brian? 
I'm not. But free free coffee with a purchase at a Dunkin' Donuts today. It's your service announcement. Oh, I did not. I did not know that. I know a number of people have been doing the uh, free coffee Panera deal. I don't remember what the deal actually is. People have been bragging pretty pretty severely about that. You're a Panera guy. You don't. You just today. don't like it. You don't like it, or you. I do not like coffee. I'm a. I'm as you know. I drink uh, unsweetened iced tea wherever I go. I drink too much of it, but uh, not coffee. I've never been. I just don't like the taste of it. Ah, that's interesting. So it's not that it's too bitter because it's not like you're drinking sweet tea. You like unsweetened tea. That's right. Well, that's right. No judgment. I just don't know how you do it. That is uh, my hats off to you. I didn't start drinking coffee till my twenties, and it became. Very apparent, very quickly. I was like, oh, I understand this appeal now. Like, I see like, everyone's been drinking oh. this in the bucket loads for decades. But, uh, yeah, I it's nice because I don't have, like, an automatic coffee thing. So it that helps temper how much I actually drink. So that's that's a little intentional safeguarding right there. That's like deleting apps off your phone. Like, I don't, I don't want to have that kind of access to it. Um, Brian and I are both parents. We talk about parenting uh, a fair deal. And every once in a while, probably more than that, probably a number of times a week, we try to tackle some kind of parenting topic or parenting article. And uh, I found this article, again, it's a couple years old from Jeff Robinson. So if the language doesn't mention, you know, a pandemic or anything like that, that's why it's from October 9th, 2018. But it simply reads six ways to ruin your children. Why don't you get us into it? Uh, yeah, and I'm looking at the, uh, speaking of ruining my children, I'm looking outside my window right now, and the ice cream man just drove by. I feel like it's a little cold for the ice cream man right now, no? Wow, read the room, man. What are you doing? I don't know. It feels a little <laughs> cold out there. All right, six ways to ruin your children. This is by Jeff Robinson. He says, I'll never forget the day my wife and I brought our oldest son home after his birth. It was more than 16 years ago, and he was our first child. At that point in my life, I'm not sure I'd ever held a baby, much less provided daily acute care for one. I'd certainly never changed a diaper. My wife didn't have a long resume with children either. Would this child survive us was the question. I remember the ride home from the hospital, him snugly buckled his backward facing pumpkin seat, us biting our nails more than each passing mile. I was a father. (laughs) She was. This is such a perfect picture. Yeah. Let me pause here. I'll never forget. It will be vivid to the day I die of us driving home our first child and me having this sense of dread going, what have we done? She's crying in the back and just going... (laughs) What have we done? Yeah, mine, so mine was that. more panic. I was trying to make a left-hand turn out of the hospital, and I remember like yelling, like, why is everyone driving so crazy? And <laughs> my wife goes, everyone's driving exactly the same. You're freaking out. I'm like, oh, okay, got it. <laughs> I'm with you on that one. Uh, so he goes, in the paranoid parents, he says, those early days of parenting often, exolved, uh, often involve paralyzing paranoia every time pacifier hit the ground. Uh, We'd boil it for 30 minutes and so on. Uh, There are so many questions, he said. Would we ever get over this deep anxiety of the very sight of bathwater? What was that our fault? Would he ever potty train? Did he suffer from numerous permanent phobias? Would his Christology be orthodox? (laughs) If you've been a parent for very long, you know of what I speak. There's a lingering fear, a virtual psychosis that we will permanently ruin our four children. As a father for 16 years now, he writes, I've come to the realize that a germy pacifier or an irrational fear of thunderstorms are not signs of acute parental failure, (laughs) but there are many ways you can ruin your children, subtle ways that tend to show up over time. As a parent, I'd grade myself at about a C minus. 
My wife is definitely the valid Victorian between the two of us. And that's same, true. same. Yeah. So here are six ways, all of which I have been guilty, that you could ruin those who bear your last name who will someday appear on your auto insurance policy. <laughs> I love that setup right there. That I could agree with so much of that. But, you know, there there are this is a good list of ways that you could ruin your child. And but I think he did a good job in the beginning. there, going, hey, on some level. Uh, you just got to give yourself some grace. You just got to yeah. give yourself some grace and just keep going. So here we go. It's a list because it's gospel coalition. It's a list. Sure. So <laughs> number one, don't tell them you're a sinner. I'm at my worst as a father. When I assume the role of sinless savior that mm. belongs to Christ alone. When I say things like I didn't act that way when I was your age, then I confuse them as to why they need the gospel in the first place. And I become a whitewashed tomb. Mm. My children need to know that my heart was once captive to sin as well. And that I remain in the middle of sanctification. They know that I still sin, but that I have forgiveness in the sinless savior savior. They need to know their sinning is inherited from their Federal head Adam, yes, but also from their earthly father. That's good. I haven't heard federal head Adam in a while. Uh, I, played base, I. I played bass in federal head Adam. <laughs> federal uh, head Adam. You're going to laugh at that joke every time, aren't you? Uh, we could do this show for 30 years, and I will <laughs> laugh at that on the 30th year. Well, as long as you laugh at my lame jokes, I'll keep making them. Number two, uh, don't ask them to forgive you for sinning against them. Oh, interesting. I once had an older man in our church tell me I should never apologize to our children. To do so would show weakness, he reasoned. I am a five-star general. They are privates. I have sinned against my family without admitting it to them far too many times to count, but there have been times I have gone to them and said something like, Daddy has sinned against you or your mother. And the Lord, I have asked the Lord to forgive me. Now I need to seek your forgiveness. Jesus is my savior, but he's still changing my heart. The older man was actually correct about one thing. Confession reveals weakness, but my family needs to see that I am weak, that my strength is in Christ alone, and that repentance is a necessary part of both salvation and sanctification. Such admission of sin shows them that Jesus, not dad or mom, is the one who kept God's law to perfection. I am convinced my children we're born with built-in Pharisee detectors. Most are. If I talk about the gospel all the time and talk about repentance and yet seem to sin with impunity, they will unmask my hypocrisy pretty quickly, or they'll learn to imitate it. I can tell them that the gospel transforms sinners, but they won't believe me. They might become atheists. They might become Pharisees. That's a good one. Hmm. Yeah. Number three, don't pray with them. Remember, this is how you ruin your children. So he's right. not saying don't pray with them. But that's right. How you ruin them. right. He says, we tend to pray zealously for our children, but do we often pray with them? Hmm. Praying with our children, at least daily in our homes, teaches them two things. The invitation to come to God's throne of grace is always open, and we are entirely dependent upon the Lord. By praying with them, you also model for them how to pray biblically as Jesus did for his followers and show them that when you taught them 1 Thessalonians 5.17, which is pray without ceasing, you really meant it, and they really need it. We're not going to get through all. Well, let's I'll move fast. Number four, and then again, this is a list of uh, six ways to ruin your kids. Don't do nothing with them. The longer I've parented, the more clearly I've come to see a fallacy in the popular distinction between quality time and quantity time. Every hour we spend with our children should be quality time, even when it seems like we're doing nothing of consequence. Yes, we should spend ample time teaching the Bible and theology. That's part of training them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But we can unwittingly communicate that the Christian life reaches its apex when it most closely resembles the seminary classroom. The mundane moments are vitally important in building intimate relationships with our kids because that's where we spend 
most of our time with them. He talks about interactions with his teenage son, which you've talked about on the show before as well, like how important just those like down moments, whether it's at home or on a road trip with your kids have actually been. That's right. Number five, don't love their mother or parenthetically or father well. If you have sons, the way you treat your wife gives them a subtle education in how to treat their future wives. Mm. If you have daughters, the way you treat your wife teaches them what kind of man they want to marry or avoid marrying someday. Mm. Failing to love their mother as Christ loves the church introduces a distorted picture of the gospel into your home. The same is true for mothers, but only in reverse. And so I'll stop on that one. But just how we love our spouse teaches so much to our children is absolutely true. Yeah. Why do you think that one's so rare? I, I, I know that we're all out of time, but I, I do feel like that's that is almost the most controversial one of the list. I think so. oftentimes we some for some reason separate parenting and marriage. Right. And we just yeah. go, oh, the two aren't tied when it's I mean, you think of think about your own marriage. How much of how how often do you sit back in your own marriage and go, wow, that's exactly what my parents used to do. <laughs> like you yeah. learn stuff from right. just living in the home. And so they're going to learn about what it even looks like to be married from the parents Uh, from the marriage of the parents they have. Yeah, that's good, man. All right, lastly, number six, and six ways to ruin your kids. Don't continue family devotions if there are no immediate results. It isn't a mere cliche to say the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. We plant the seed, but the Spirit of God grows it. In the parable of the growing seed, Jesus reminded hearers that a farmer sows seeds and then goes to bed only to eventually see it germinate and grow. He knows not how, so it is with your children. So it is with every genuine Christian. They will fidget. They will seem more interested in electronic devices or TV or Fortnite. Send help, please. But keep at it. God did not grow you into a mature Christian in a day, and he may not save and sanctify them at a particularly young age. Let the parable of the persistent widow serve as a refuge that you may not lose hearts. I think that is actually a pretty... That's a yeah. pretty solid list. And again, I know that when we talk parenting, people have all sorts of opinions, which we gladly welcome. Which of this list do you totally disagree with? What would you add? What's missing? And uh, all of that is over on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, The Good Samaritan in a Coronavirus Election Year. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good on this National VFW Day. Didn't know that, did you? It's true. VFW Day to all of our VFWers. Uh, You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get podcasts, some of you are thinking, wait a minute, I'm listening via podcast right now. I'm so glad that you're listening. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, maybe even sharing Just text it to a friend like, hey, this episode was particularly off the rails. What did you think? (laughs) Any of that helps out a whole lot. We're still kind of a new show and uh, we're grateful for any any level of exposure that y'all can help us out with. This is more of a more of a story than like a discussion point. But uh, I think it's a pretty good one. This is from Yahoo News. And the headline simply reads the Good Samaritan in a coronavirus election year. You want to you want to just go ahead and read it for us and then we'll respond. I I will. It goes like this. Walking the streets of lower Manhattan for the first time in a long time, I was talking with a friend a few days ago. Over the course of 20 blocks or so, I would occasionally play with my face mask to get a little extra air. Not take it off, not pull it down, not uh, but pull it outward. I suspect that when I did that, I may have exposed my nose. The point of the story is that a woman coming toward us, but still quite far away, started screaming at me. At first... I had no idea what was going on when we were at the point when she was closer looking at me and pointing. Well, I'm only so slow. I apologized profusely. Even Uh, she had this almost primordial yelp 
that had to be about much more than me playing with a mask. You think this is a joke? She wailed. She added that she recently had had surgery. She shouldn't have played. I shouldn't have played with my mask. I know what's going on and I'm aware of people's vulnerabilities and sensitivities. On the other hand, that outburst that continued as she walked past us had to be about way more than my infraction. My friend and I had been talking at some point in our walk about the obvious deepening darkness in the city. This is life without God, he observed about the screaming incident. Obviously, neither of us had any idea what this woman believes, but this is what we're drowning in. The consequences of widespread unbelief. I find myself wanting to apologize to the people I don't even know who can't conceal their miseries. If Christians weren't often so busy with internal conflicts and corruption, we'd be making God's love unmistakably clear. Hmm. I was recently talking with a pastor of a church in the most dangerous section of Washington, D.C. As he described the children of St. Thomas More Academy there and what they have had to walk past on the way home from school, I couldn't help but see them as uh, monstrances. In a monstrance, Catholics will adore the body of Christ. I may have gotten the name wrong. In his Eucharistic presence, these children show that same transformative light. While I pray for their protection, I pray that miracles happen as they pass by, that addicts will be liberated, that wounds will be healed. I share this because there's a lot of dismissing of, quote, thoughts and prayers in our culture. And I certainly agree. A sentiment in a tweet or a press release doesn't do much for the world. It's close to meaningless if it isn't accompanied by some real pleading with God. Hmm. I recently saw the HBO series with Jude Law as the people, as the Pope, I'm sorry, in which he declares, God, we have to talk. He gets on his knees, expands his arms, and gives his prayer everything that is in him and then some. You know the scripture about the Holy Spirit taking over. That's what some real prayer is about. God gets us there if we give him time. At the same time as my encounter on the city street, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in the Vatican released a statement uh, on the care of persons in critical and terminal phases of life. I'm taken by and drawn in by so many passages, including this one. It says, especially in hospitals and clinics committed to Christian values, it is vital to create space for relationships built on the recognition of the fragility and vulnerability of the sick person. Weakness makes us conscious of our dependence on God and invites us to respond with the respect due our neighbor. Every individual who cares for the sick has the moral responsibility to apprehend the fundamental and inalienable good that is the human person. They should adhere to the highest standards of self-respect and respect for others by embracing, safeguarding, and promoting human life until natural death. At work here is a contemplative gaze that beholds in one's own existence and that of others a unique and unrepeatable wonder, received and welcomed as a gift. This is the gaze of the one who does not pretend to take possession of the reality of life, but welcomes it as it is, mm. with its difficulties and sufferings, and guided by faith, finds in illness the readiness to abandon oneself to the Lord of life who is manifest therein. Goes on to read. Imagine if we always looked at one another like that and let weakness be an entryway for God. News stories on the document focused on the guidance that priests can't be giving the sacraments to people in the hopes that God will bless their assisted suicide. And while it's helpful pushback against the trend of legalizing and utilizing doctor-assisted suicide, the document is about so much more. It's about the Christian life and how Christians owe it to the world to live it with overflowing hope. Hope is contagious. And it can be quite hidden these days. This can't be. COVID-19 and the stresses of shutdown have increased people's anxiety. We must show hope together. People of all faiths, faiths and none to those who are gravely suffering and on the brink or beyond of despair. 
There's a lot of anger in the world right now, and it will only increase as the election nears. Don't get distracted from the necessary mission of hope. Listen to the cries in the protest and the riots and the violence and the sadness and the anxiety. They are from people longing for hope. Make that your campaign to show it. This is a column uh, that, like you said, was on Yahoo. That's powerful, man. That's really powerful. What do you think of that writing? Yeah, I think it's I, I'm one. I think it's just a good piece of writing Two, uh, it's the kind of thing that I think is easy to forget because atheist or Christian or Buddhist, young and old, rich and poor, like ho- hope seems to be one of those things that is so central and yet so easily mm-hmm. beaten out of us. Like I'm thinking about an interview that I, I listened to recently with Cornell West and the headline kind of caught my attention. And the headline was something like why Cornell West is hopeful, but not optimistic. And I thought what an interest, what an interesting kind of juxtaposition. Cause we, we tend to think of the two as, as somewhat synonymous. And in the interview, he pretty brilliantly kind of unpacks why he is hopeful and where his hope mm-hmm. lies but then also, you know, speaking honestly about like, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that I'm seeing both in my own communities and in the media and trajectories that I'm hoping I'm I'm wrong in my assessment of. And yet still his capacity by the power of the Holy Spirit to hold on to hope and like how much strength and purpose that gave him. Like I felt strengthened hearing him talk about it. And I'm like, oh, yeah. gosh, this is why I think it's so important. And it can be really easy. And you and I know this doing this show because sometimes – how many times do we like fill in the rundown and we're like, gosh, this is like one discouraging story after right. another or another, right. another account of not even just outright abuse, although that's sometimes part of it of just like despondency or anxiety or fear. And uh, yeah, just the necessity of hope, I think, is one of those things that's like a deeply human thing that if we're not careful, it can be easy for us to forget that. Yeah, I mean, if we... Uh, especially as Christ followers, if we lose hope in a world that is increasingly anxious, increasingly fearful, increasingly looking for hope, uh, and and if we, instead of going, hey, we've got some hope here, like let us tell you about the hope in Christ, uh, if if we instead are like, yep, there's no hope in this world, then uh, we're not only missing an opportunity, but we're missing kind of our calling there to go and be ambassadors of Christ, to be lights in a dark world. Uh, and so I think this is a great calling that especially as Christ words, like you said, people are just longing for hope right now. There's so much out there that's causing fear and anxiety and just getting people down uh, that the church needs to look different and not in a fake way, not like, oh, let's pretend to be hopeful, but right. in a genuine, uh, I've been changed by the love of Christ and I want you to know that hope type of way. And hopefully the church will do a good job at that as we continue to move forward through this. Yeah, well said, man. Coming up next, an article I found out of the Atlantic, which means, you know, it's not necessarily written from a uniquely Christian perspective, but I, I wanted to kind of build a bridge from this segment to the next because the headline reads, What to do when the future feels hopeless. Humans like to feel optimistic about and in control of where their life is headed. The pandemic has made it very hard to feel that way. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good for the final segment today. But fret not, we are back again tomorrow and every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. on AM 1160 and wherever it is you get your podcasts. Speaking of podcasts, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, reviewing helps out a whole ton. We'd love to hear from you over at the Facebook page of the Common Good Radio Show or anywhere else you'd like to interact with us. Some people have found 
other shows called The Common Good and interacted there, which I imagine is, that right? is surprising <laughs> to the people on the receiving end of that. But uh, yeah, you'll see, yes, typically it's green and has our faces or our masked faces. Man, remember when I did that? That was yeah. like early, early, early in uh, in this whole pandemic mess. And now, now it feels a little, hmm, what's the word? on the nose a little borderline yeah. prophetic is like oh yeah that's uh, <laughs> that's everyone's everyone's reality uh so we just spent the last segment talking about hope and i think the the real significance for the church to be a beacon of hope like you were saying brian not like in any kind of trite or superficial way right. which is sometimes where i feel like the church can find itself like hope in the midst of chaos and struggle and difficulty which often has a lot more grit than people realize and i found this article from the atlantic that the uh, headline simply reads, what to do when the future feels hopeless. you want to get us into it? I do. I do. Uh, as you said, this is from the Atlantic. It says, you live in the future. So do I. We all do. It's human nature. However, there are times, such as during a pandemic, when this nature makes us suffer. Hmm. We are, quote, prospective creatures, according to psychologists and philosophers. Uh, indeed, as uh, Martin Seligman told me, on average, we spend 30 to 50% of our self-generated thought, what we think about when we aren't trying to concentrate, contemplating the distant future. Wow, that's really, that's interesting. Wow. No other creatures do this, with the small exception of some primates who store tools for future use. Hmm. Uh, living in the future is one reason meditation and practicing mindfulness are so hard. Meditators speak of the monkey mind. The monkey doesn't want to sit still. He right. wants to swing off to the next tree and see what's up there. That's true. The perspective monkey in our minds wants to see lots of tasty fruit and have a way to get it. The best way to frustrate him is an empty tree or one where the fruit is out of his reach. Since we spend so much time living in the future, it makes us happy to feel that the future is full of possibilities for improvement and that we have some control over making those possibilities into realities. In contrast, a near-perfect cocktail for misery is pessimism and low personal control over our circumstances. Because of the pandemic, the, the future feels difficult and uncertain, and few of us have much control over it beyond doing our best to keep ourselves and those around us safe. The result is a lot of unhappy monkeys. Gallup survey data show that pessimism about the future of the pandemic in the U.S. is rising. This is infecting our general outlook. It says, I wake up every day with nothing to look forward to, a friend recently confessed to me. I just feel like staying in bed. Hmm. We make light of the pessimism, even creating amusing pessimistic characters such as Eeyore and Charlie Bat Brown. But in real life, pessimism is no laughing matter. So I'm going to pause there. I've never really thought of that, man. I don't know if you have that as humans, we are, uh, I've never thought about how future focused we are. That's 30 to 50% of our non-concentrating time being thinking about the distant future, they said. And that uh, when we think about the future, we tend to do it in a positive way. I can make change. It's going to get better. But that the pandemic and all that we're going through is changing that and making us a lot more pessimistic and therefore kind of losing our outlook. This is all really interesting. I hadn't really thought about this. Yeah, and I, and I want to get to, before the segment is done, like what is the Christian's response? Because I do I do feel like, um, yeah. you know, they, they reference mindfulness and meditation. And those are things that you and I have tackled from a Christian perspective a number of times. But I want to share some of the, some of the research because it says young adults who are pessimistic are disproportionately likely to suffer poor health in middle age. 
Similarly, scholars have shown that having a sense of low personal control links adverse economic circumstances to poor health and impaired emotional functioning. Low personal control in the workplace, called low decision latitude by psychologists, especially in combination with high pressure, was found to be a significant predicator of depression. Uh, sorry, not predicator, predictor of depression <laughs> and low job satisfaction among workers in one 1990 study. So there's a lot of linkage to the kinds of circumstances that, again, I think sometimes people feel like they don't have, it doesn't affect them as much because everyone's feeling it. And I think that there's a myth in that, that because, well, everyone's in a pandemic, it's literally a global pandemic. So uh, maybe what I'm feeling isn't as bad because it is sort of like, well, we're all kind of in this. And I think downplaying some of what this lack of control or, you know, even, even worse, people who have lost loved ones or lost jobs or facing serious health battles now i think i think that all plays into it absolutely and it's interesting you brought that up because it says not only do many people feel pessimistic about their personal future right now there's an overwhelming collective sense of powerlessness and negativity Uh, it's not just that my future feels bleak so does our future this whole idea within a pandemic like you said the idea of it being global Um, and so this is written by arthur brooks Uh, He says, but we're not helpless. There's little we can do to change the harsh realities of the pandemic. We can change the mindset, though, we use to face them. By doing two things, we can improve our ability to cope with this situation as well as with the negativity and feelings of powerlessness. Uh, So the number one thing he says is channel your inner lawyer. Uh, He says, uh, basically disputing technique, verbalizing the negative assumptions we're making about the future and disputing them with realistic facts. So channeling your inner lawyer. Uh, and turn constraints into decisions. He says, start an examination of every problem by listing the apparent limitations on your freedom. And instead of taking them as a given, consider how you can change them. So those are his two answers. But I think you made an interesting point and something I'm sure that you want to get us to as we close the show is, uh, what is the Christ follower? Are those the best solutions right there? Or or for pessimism and looking towards the future, what would you say pastorally uh, are the answers, are there different answers for us as the followers of Jesus? Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily call them answers. I would maybe call them responses. I think part of the problem with how often we speak to things as, as answers, we treat it like a Q&A, right? You have a question, here is the answer. You have a problem, mm-hmm. here is the solution. I don't think it's always that one-to-one. In fact, I, I feel like a lot of people end up feeling really gypped by Christianity because someone handed them a version that sounded something like, pray this prayer. And your life will be perpetually awesome. And then when it isn't, they feel like either that pastor lied to me or God isn't real or he doesn't like me or, you know what I mean? Like there's all these other. So I think a lot of it has to do with, I mean, I think back to like Paul in in the book of Philippians when he's writing about joy from the perspective of someone in prison. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense at all. Then clearly what his joy is rooted in is beyond his circumstances. I think there's a lot in scripture as it pertains to both hope and joy and love and forgiveness and all sorts of things that like circumstantially, like that doesn't, how could you come to that conclusion? That to me is at least like a taste. It's a whisper of what, what it looks like to be like truly sustained by God in these circumstances, Mm -hmm. like for God, not to just be like a mascot, but for him to be like my vitality. And that Mm -hmm. is not just, uh, that's not just a switchy flip. Like that's, a formation question. You know, Rich Velotis just published his book, uh, A Deeply Formed Life, and in it talks a lot about paying attention to the interior life and how we're formed, you know, sometimes in like these big dramatic moments, but 
more often do these like small acts of like choosing again to trust God and take him at his word, choosing again to align my heart with his. Like, I think we just can't underestimate the little things right now. And I think it's, mm-hmm. it's as important now as it's ever been. I don't know. Would you, would you add anything to that? I would just add something we add almost on a daily basis. And this is again, the importance of Christian community yeah. that when I'm left to my own devices, I can get very uh, pessimistic and I can get uh, this kind of, you know, what, what this article is talking about, but I need other Christ followers around me where we can be iron sharpening iron, right? Where we can be uh, reminding each other of the good news of the gospel and helping point each other in that direction and doing this together. I think it's once again, highlights the importance of community. Yeah, that's a good word, man. Again, that's from the Atlantic. That's over on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. We'd love to know maybe even just this question. What's bringing you hope these days? How are you able to kind of hold on to hope or are you able to, let's be, I don't know, let's be a community where we can lift each other up, offer some encouragement and uh, some light at the end of uh, what's felt like a pretty dark and long tunnel. And with that, that uh, concludes our our service. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> Let's, benedict. Let's do benediction. What is the? Yeah, why don't you offer it? What What is the four corners benediction? Oh, I we always sing the doxology. I'm not going to do that. Oh, for do you it. Right sing here. the doxology, I'm Brian. Not going to do that for you right now. But I re- I will usually read a text and then we will sing the doxology together. Okay. So. Well, as but we as we wrap up, why don't you all just imagine Brian singing the doxology? <laughs> I'm going to work on getting that audio and we'll open the show with it tomorrow, hopefully. And, nice. <laughs> so you're not going to want to miss it. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.